I will set out for Gaul myself and confront our enemies. They will learn the error of their ways. But why might early Christians have called Nero the Antichrist? I will quash my deluded enemy, not with the sword. I intend to sing to them. We'd like to uh, welcome back to uh, the life of Caesar. Uh, we're not talking about Nero today because we have one of our favourite authors, and I'm not just saying that because he's a fellow Australian, Stephen Dando right. Collins, back with us to talk about his latest book, Constantine at the Bridge, How the Battle of the Milvian Bridge Created Christian Rome, one of my favourite topics. <laughs> welcome to Welcome back to the show, Stephen. How are you, sir? Scam, Ray, how are you guys? Great to be back with you. We're great. Thank you. Um, yes. So we have covered this subject. We, we've done many, many episodes about Constantine, but on our Renaissance show, uh -huh. because, of course, right. you can't talk about the Renaissance without <laughs> talking about Constantine. That's my particular uh, view because uh, you have to uh, know uh, why the Dark Ages happened in order to talk about how they came out of the Dark Ages. Okay. Um, but. And, and I talked about him in my film, Marketing the Messiah, the posters behind me, obviously, but um, I, I never get tired of talking about it. So this is for the people that haven't listened to our Renaissance show. Um, give them some background exactly. on Constantine. And it's always great to have another book, the famous Battle of the Milvian Bridge, of course, that took place in October 312 CE and, and is very misunderstood, I find. People have a lot of misperceptions about Constantine, about the role that he played in Christianity, particularly Christians seem to be very confused about it. I was being interviewed by a Christian guy on YouTube recently talking about my film, and he didn't really seem to understand uh, the role that Constantine played. But before we get into that, uh, let's talk about why you decided to write a book about Constantine. What was missing from the other books out there that you felt you needed to uh add to or fix or uh, do a better job of? Uh, this is a subject I've been researching for, for decades. And uh, in the past, my decade is uh, my uh, focus has tended to be on the, uh, the first century uh, because there's so much material about uh, the legions and uh, the, the emperors and, uh, and their, the imperial families and so on. But I, I always had this desire to go to Constantine to find out why he was great and um, uh, also to, to my central subject of interest has always been the legions. And uh, it, it, I was fascinated by the way that the legions, which had been you know, the, the so uh, powerful in the first century in particular, uh, had been uh, downgraded and uh, how they had uh, lost their, their impact on history. Mm. And mm -hmm. uh, so, following that through, Constantine was the was the uh, the last uh, emperor of the entire uh, Roman Empire, and uh, I, I wanted to see how he used the military uh, in his uh, uh, campaign to to become emperor. Mm -hmm. And, and let's talk about the sources then, Stephen, because my understanding is there's not a lot of them when you get to Constantine. We, we don't have a lot to work with. No, it's true, and, and most of them are uh, biased, written by uh, Christian sources who mm -hmm. wanted to paint Constantine as uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, being championed by God and championing God uh, mm -hmm. and um, 
So, uh, and there were several other sources that were biased the other way. Um, his his nephew's uh, correspondence secretary and uh, another uh, official in the uh, in Julian's uh, administration wrote uh, about Constantine from the other side as well. Mm. So we do get. Uh, conflicting uh, accounts, but fortunately there have been uh, there were several uh, orations written uh, and delivered about and to Constantine. Again, these were sycophantic and, you know, and and very biased, but they give us quite a lot of detail about uh, about Constantine and about the period, about the military, uh, about the the rivalries between the uh, the the different uh, uh, gentlemen who were uh, you know, trying to uh, claim the throne. Um, so once I determine, okay, there's enough, there are enough sources, there is enough material, um, I then uh, got stuck into the subject uh, seriously. Mm. It's interesting. I was uh, mentioned um, this this uh, Christian fellow um, Lutheran pastor who was interviewing me on one of his shows recently, and we were were talking about the subject of the historicity of Jesus, and um, he said, well, it's interesting to me that people don't take the same critical view of sources uh, to other historical characters that they do to Jesus, and I was like, are you kidding me? That's what we spend our lives doing is going, well, here are the sources, and obviously they're biased from this position or that position, and sort of our job is to kind of work out, if we can, where the truth may lie. But quite often we can't. So all we, like what we say all the time is, like, take it or leave it. That's the story as it's been presented, as it's come down to us. What the truth was, we'll probably never know, but, you know, it's somewhere lies in here. Um, all right, so you spent a lot of the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, and, in fact, there was a, there was a few things in your book that um, I haven't read in other books that I've talked about on the shows, like the Cairo, the history to the Cairo, yeah. which we'll, we'll get into, which I was so pleased to see in your book um, because it, it's one of those things that's always baffled the hell out of me why every book and every article about Constantine makes out that he invented the Cairo when it had been around for 600 years. Went back to the Egyptians. Yeah, it was, and, and I'm like, well, right. why isn't anyone talking about this? What's yeah. What am I missing that no one else is talking about this? And I was glad to see it in your book. But you spent a lot of time obviously talking about um, uh, how Constantine ended up at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and, um, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I, I want to talk about some of the finer details of his reign. But um, would you mind giving us like a quick summation as uh, about how he ended up there in the first place, his background and uh, the internecine rivalries, etc.? Okay, so uh, we get to a period in Roman history where uh, we end up with for the first time with two emperors, one of the east, one of the west. And uh, Diocletian, Diocletian, however you want to pronounce his name, uh, decided uh, that he wanted to share power. And so he installed himself in the east at uh, Nicomedia uh, and set up an emperor in the west, not at Rome, but in Milan. And, uh, and uh, this uh, was... Um, Constant, it became Constantine's father, Constantius uh, Chlorus, Constant, Constantius the Pale. And they, mm. in turn, uh, appointed 
Caesars, as they were called. Caesar was a family name, obviously, in the early part of the imperial history, but it became a, a title. So the Caesars by this stage are now the deputy emperors. And it was assumed that Constantine's, uh, uh, once Constantine's father died, uh, that Constantine, being his son and heir, would become uh, his successor. Uh, but this this wasn't the case. And um, uh, a um, Galerius, the Caesar of Diocletian, chose his own relatives and friends to fill the other posts the, the, uh, around the empire. And so Constantine was left um, a, a young man uh, of about approaching you know, 30 uh, when his father died. Um, he was hailed on his father's death in Britain at York uh, by his own troops as the new emperor of the West. And he resisted that. In fact, according to, to one of his uh, 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 the sources that is favourable to him, as I said, he jumped on his horse and rode out of the camp. He, <laughs> and his own troops rode after him and said, yeah, please, please accept the, uh, accept the throne. I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> so um, uh, then uh, he was talked into it. And he, but that's, um, sorry, that story, I mean, we've heard that story before, right? That's a classic hagiographical story, like Caesar yeah. thrice denied, everyone's always thrice denying these things, and they're like, all right, all right, yeah, I'll so accept I'll take it. it, I'll take yeah. the power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, however, the world. The, yeah, this, yeah. there's a pattern. There's a pattern. So it, every time he comes to the brink of power up to a certain point, uh, he resists it. And and you're right. You know there was this you know, you know this. Oh, I don't want it. But if 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 I must, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for the people. I don't think right. there was, that was an element. He in it. I I believe uh, that Constantine thoroughly enjoyed being a soldier. He was a, he's very good at it, uh, mm-hmm. and um, that's all he was really interested in. He 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 didn't want the responsibilities of power, um, and he quickly backed down. Uh, he sent his portrait to uh, uh, Galerius in the east and around uh, his own uh, region, uh, which was the thing you did. You sent your your portrait to be carried in the processions during the games um, throughout the year. And uh, so he he sends his portrait and uh, Galerius is is so furious, uh, he burns the portrait, executes the (laughs) The messenger who's brought it, um, and, uh, and and tells Constantine uh, that no, you're a naughty boy. Uh, you're not going to be the emperor, um, but you'll be uh, his deputy. So, and Constantine says, "Fine, good, right. I'm happy with that. Uh, and I'll go back to soldiering." And he goes back to the Rhine and and, and, and continues fighting the Germans, which is the thing he loves most. So um, uh, I, I truly think that he he, he had no ambitions to go for the top job because he was actually fearful of Galerius. Um, uh, it was only after Galerius dies at the age of 53 from what sounds like a very nasty cancer, uh, uh, perhaps bowel cancer, only then, once this you know, this, uh, this uh, most powerful figure in the Roman world at that time is out of the way, does he start to uh, pursue uh, the throne seriously. And of course, Galerius died painfully because Jesus, uh, you know, sent him a horrible sure. death because he was Ab- mean towards the Christians for a while there. Ab- absolutely. If you believe uh, Lactantius and Eusebius, uh, the two Christian writers who who knew Constantine, um, uh, 
and, and Newsom Bias had this, this this thing about the cross, and he was trying to paint the, the, throughout his writings, trying to paint this picture of Constantine being the the man who uh, pushed the the cross to the fore in his symbolism. Uh, and as an example, we talked about the Cairo. Um, uh, before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, now, and, and the, the two accounts of this that we get are both from Christian writers, so they're a bit mm. uh, are clearly biased. Uh, but we, I believe that uh, uh, Constantine did change his standard uh, and uh, and placed the. I know we're going to talk about it later, but he placed oh, the. Oh, let's talk about it now. Yeah. Okay, so he placed the Cairo on the top, but basically. It, it was done very quickly in a matter of hours. It was his original standard. So explain uh, explain to people listening what the Cairo is if they're not familiar with it. Okay. Um, so um, it's uh, two Greek letters, which are the the first letter of, of uh, first in the, in Greek are the first letters of of the of the name of Christ, uh, but they're also the first two letters in the Greek word meaning good. Okay, but let's let's sorry, you know, Christianity nerd here. Um, okay. When you say the name of Christ, it's actually of Christ, which yes. is a title, not a name. Exactly, it, Christ. It's a Greek word, Christos, hmm. XP, the first two letters, hmm. and uh, um, but XP also the first two letters in the uh, Greek word uh, uh, good. Good. And we mentioned earlier. It, hmm. We go back to coins of uh, a. Um, uh, a, an Egyptian king of Greek heritage. Macedonian. Uh, yeah, he, Macedonian he, king, yeah. Yeah, uh, who uh, uses XP on his, uh, mm-hmm. on his coins oh. to show that, uh, that he is a, a force for good. In the 3rd century BCE, so 600 yeah. years before yep. Constantine's use of it, yep. Yeah, and also XP in those days, in Constantine's uh, day and well before it, if people were reading a Greek text on a scroll, and they like something, you know, how dreadful people today will underline something in a book and ruin or put a, an asterisk in, in the sign. Mm. In those days, they would put, oh, I like that, XP. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put the Cairo, mm-hmm. as it became called, decided to mark something that they felt was good. So uh, and as we're told that um, uh, Constantine was a dreadful Greek scholar, but he was made to, uh, his, his father wanted him to learn Greek, as did Diocletian, uh, because it was the language of the court, it was the language that was used in all the uh, uh, communications, the official documentation of the empire even then. So he he became, he was a reluctant student of Greek. So you can imagine him putting XP as he's uh, doing his schooling in his these texts that he's, Greek texts that he's being made to study. Mm. So he's, he's very familiar with XP as a uh, symbol of good. Not to be and confused with Windows XP, which was a terrible operating system that I was exactly. at Microsoft for. That's I also, bad. I remember when we were doing our Alexander the Great series, um, there's, there was mentioned that Demosthenes had the phrase good luck emblazoned in golden letters on his shield at the Battle of Chironia in 338 uh-huh. BCE. So I've always thought that maybe that was an XP that he had on his shield then as well. So it predates Christianity. It seems to be one of those things that the Christians like December 25th of Christmas, which you mentioned in the book, is it just sort of got, oh, yes, well, no, that was that was a Christian That's thing, good. you know. Yeah, of yeah, course. We'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. You got retrofitted into uh, Christianity. Exactly. Um, so Constantine, he has an existing standard. 
as every commander did, uh, and it's a long pole. But on the top of the pole, there's a cross piece, and hanging from the cross piece is a, is a cloth banner uh, engraved, in, in his case, in gold and jewels, uh, and it would have been an abbreviation of his name and his title, I would have thought, at, at that point. Uh, right. and, uh, and hanging from it also were several uh, medallions with the, uh, the, the images of himself and his children, we're told. So that mm. would have been a standard, uh, standard, standard. <laughs> if you pardon the term. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, for hundreds of years up to the time of Constantine. But Yusuf Bias, when he's writing about it, saying, ah, look, his soldiers are going forward behind the symbol of the cross. Mm-hmm. But this cross uh, 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 yeah, form of, of the standard you know, went back hundreds of years. Now, I want to... I wanna... Sorry, Ray, I know you haven't said anything. Just, you want to say something so you feel important? Just, just I, actually, I'd love, that's the only reason I talk. Just real quick, <laughs> a follow-up question to that. When his when um, Constantine's soldiers see the Cairo, are they automatically supposed to go, oh, so we're, we're fighting for Cristo or whatever? Are, are they going to know specifically what he means? Are they going to assume, like you just said, oh, that's a sign of good, like maybe good luck versus we're supporting Christ? Or our mission is good. We're on the yeah. right well, side. Our mission is good. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. I would suspect, well, you would know logically that the vast majority of the troops wouldn't have even have seen it. We're talking about 30,000, right. 40,000 men. So right. imagine you're, so, you're at a football crowd right. and on the other side of the stadium someone's holding up a banner. Uh, you're yeah. not going to be able to read that. And they wouldn't no. know what it means too. I mean, estimates uh, uh, are that the empire maybe was 5% Christian at the time. Exactly. Most exactly. of them wouldn't know who Christ was. And exactly. it would be complete and, nonsense. And, and prior to this point, uh, we know that at least you know, 100 years before, the cross was the symbol that they were using. Uh, you know, there was one uh, Christian writer who said, to, uh, we nearly wore out our thumbs crossing ourselves on our foreheads yeah. uh, on, 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 the, on the Sabbath. And the uh, fish. So, They'd use yeah, the yeah. fish as their secret fish. symbol and the cross. Yeah. XP, yeah. as you put in the book, hadn't been used in Christianity before as far as we know. anybody. Yeah. So it, it would have, oh. for the few close to Constantine's uh, standard, it would have meant nothing. So let me ask you this question. As I mentioned earlier, in all the stuff I've read about Constantine and the Cairo before, I cannot recall ever seeing in any academic text the connection between the Cairo and Ptolemy III and the being on the coins and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Why are you the first person to mention that in a book? Why does that go unmentioned in every other book on Constantine or on ecclesiastical history or Christian history that I've ever read? Because it's taught at university level uh, and mm. it's the old case of, you know, this is the way it's always been. Uh, uh, and my my mantra in life is uh, question everything. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And, and you only have to ask, ask another very simple question. Why then if the Cairo, I, I accept that, that, that Constantine would have, uh, at the Battle of the Million Bridge, his standard had been changed and the Cairo was on it because within months he's issuing coins celebrating his victory and the Cairo, uh, his standard with the Cairo, is on those coins. So, you know, there is, that, that to me is, is pretty good proof that it was current at that time. Mm. But how important was it to him? Mm. Well, as we know, the Arch of Constantine was built by the Senate uh, to appease him because uh, he had uh, uh, conquered Rome, literally. Mm, mm, and um, nowhere on the Arch of Constantine is the Cairo or 
any other Christian symbol. Mm. In fact, it's dominated by the images of uh, uh, Sol, mm. uh, the sun god, and other uh, pagan gods. Mm. And he lived for another 22 years after that. He mm -hmm. had plenty of opportunities. We know that he knocked down buildings that he had built because he was unhappy with the, the way they were done, mm. knocked them down, had them rebuilt mm. at great expense. Mm. So why then over the next 22 years did he not say, um, you know, let us, uh, uh, let us um, uh, make some changes to the Arch of Constantine, let's, mm. let's put the Cairo and, and some mm. Christian okay. symbolism. Mm. Never happened. Mm. Um, so... Number one, I believe he did use uh, you know, change his standard for the, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge mm. uh, as purely a PR exercise. Mm -hmm. um, but how important was it to him uh, going forward? Mm. Not particularly. Mm. And let's talk about so the um, you know obviously there's there's various accounts of the vision that he supposedly had the night before the battle that led yeah. him to put this on and. You know, we have um, various versions of it. There are two that you mention in your book, the classic two, um, Eusebius or Eusebius and Lactantius, both yeah. Christian accounts. There's a third account that you don't mention in your book, the one by Nazaris in uh -huh. one of the panegyrics, uh, yes. which is a pagan version of it. But it, even if we just look at the Christian version, so... Eusebius had written a history of the church um, you know, around about 326 after Constantine had, had come to power yeah. um, where he doesn't mention the vision at all, which you think would be a, like in, in, in the classic version that everyone knows, well, Christians tend to know, um, you know, Eve before the battle, Constantine has this uh, some sort of a vision of Jesus saying, put this on your banner, put the, my symbol on your banner and you will be victorious, uh, and he did, which is a pretty big deal. But a couple of things, but, but when, when Eusebius wrote the history of the church, he never mentions this. Later on, he writes his life of Constantine after Constantine's after Constantine dead. Died. After yeah. he's dead, yeah. then he comes corrected. up. Yeah. Then <laughs> he comes up with this whole story about, uh, you know, the dream and a flaming cross and all of this kind of stuff. Um then you've got Lactantius's version. Now explain to everyone. Oh, so Eusebius was a, a, a bishop of uh, uh, Caesarea, right? It was Caesarea, Eusebius yes. of Caesarea. Palestine, yeah. Um, one of several Eusebiuses who play a role in Constantine's story. Um, then you've got Lactantius. He was a tutor to Constantine's son, Dean's right? He was son, close yes. to the family. Yep, Christmas. Um, well, he, I don't know how close he was to the family. Oh, really? No, no. I, um, uh, he tutored the son, so he, he tutored the son. Constantine knew he may have known him in the east when he was uh, uh, studying there uh, and, and living at the palace at Nicomedia. Um, so, but what influence he had on on Constantine is unknown. And uh, a lot of Christian writers, more modern Christian writers, uh, claim that Lactantius actually went with Constantine, marched with him to Rome and was at the mm -hmm. Battle of the Milving Bridge. But uh, most uh, historians don't accept that. He was back in, uh, in Trier with, uh, with young Crispus uh, or teenage Crispus and, and, and played no party mm. in, the, in the, at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. But you mentioned the, the pagan source. I do actually uh, refer to that because several years before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, um, we hear from the pagan source, and this is one of the uh, orations delivered about Constantine to Constantine uh, in Trier, um, we hear 
that Constantine sees a, an image in the sky of Apollo, the god mm. Apollo, and uh, mm. Victoria, the goddess uh, uh, of, um, of victory. And in this vision, they promise him victory and more than 30 years uh, uh, reign. And uh, but the description of this image in the sky around the sun is very, very similar to the one we hear later hear from, um, from uh, Lactantius. But I, I mean, so I, he has an MO. Yeah, but I was... Yes, yes. I wasn't yeah, talking about the Apollo and Victoria vision. I was talking about okay. the Milvian Bridge vision because Nazarius gave yes. another panegyric where he said um, uh, that it was Constantine Chlorus. It was his yeah. father, his dead father and uh, uh-huh. a ghost yes, army okay. yes. that yes, appeared to him. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and he gave this speech uh, uh, during, Const- I think it was on the 15th anniversary of Constantine's coming to the throne, um, not in the presence of Constantine, most scholars yeah. think, but right. while he was alive... So where he and there's debate about well did he take the Christian version of the story and paganize it or was this the original version of the story that was later Christianized? No one really knows. But the fact no. that there was a pagan version of the story that said it was his yeah. father that came to his aid mm, with yes. uh, right. thousands, tens of thousands of ghost soldiers, uh, I think right. is fascinating. Yes. But then, as you say, the Apollo and Victoria. So. As Ray said, he had an MO, visions of gods appearing to him and, yep. uh, you know, it was, a, it was a common motif. Pick, a, pick yep. a god, he had a vision of them yep. telling him uh, uh, that he was destined for power. The other thing I like about the Christian version of the story that I always talk about, I uh, talk about particularly in my film, is that, you know, Hazar, Jesus finally becomes the warrior king messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. Uh, the Messiah, of course, the, the, the sort of the dominant view in Judaism in the first century was that the Messiah would be a warrior king in the line of David that would come and defeat their enemies and save them from oppression and all that bring you know bring about worldwide uh, worship of Yahweh. Jesus obviously didn't manage to pull any of that off in his lifetime, but now in the Constantine and Eusebius's version of the story, Jesus finally turns up with a ghost army and kills tens of thousands of Romans. So he becomes the bloodthirsty conqueror warrior king that uh, they had He's always been hoping for. Prolact. Yeah, he was, he was yeah. late, late to the party, but he finally showed up and brought his A game. Which I, just that idea of, uh, you know, warrior Jesus uh, with an army kind of thing is uh, always, always fun to think of. Make a great movie. Yeah, would yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've talked it. about yeah. um, the Cairo. We've talked about the vision. We've talked about Nazarius. Let's talk about um, maybe the actual battle itself, Ray. Do you have any questions about the battle of the bridge? Well, the one thing, without going into too much detail, uh, you make it plain in your book that Constantine is a soldier. He likes soldiering. He's got a lot of experience. He's a very good fighter. Whereas his opposite, Maxentius, is the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, he's had a pretty cushy life. He's not warrior-like in any way. And actually, he's concerned about that. But the one part of your book that I liked, as they're about, as the two sides are about to meet, forget the Cairo for a second, because uh, Constantine seems to have a very specific 
uh, plan in mind of attack, who to who to attack, who to avoid, and whatever. But if you could give us a basic layout of the two sides that are opposing each each other, I found it very interesting that even though Constantine supposedly has God on his side, he has a very secure, solid plan on how to defeat this much larger army. Yes, he he comes uh, from uh, Gaul with a smaller mm-hmm. army. Uh, Maxentius, his brother-in-law, they're about the same age in the 30s. Right. Uh, uh, Constantine has married Maxentius' uh, sister, and mm-hmm. and uh, um, so they're supposedly close. Fam- family uh, affair. Family affair, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you say, Maxentius, had, he'd been a, had a very sm- a spoiled childhood. No one ever imagined that he would be brought to power. Uh, but the Praetorian Guard, when they discover that uh, uh, Diocletian, the, the then emperor, uh, was going to uh, abolish the Praetorian Guard, which was an Italian mm-hmm. unit, and all the rulers by this stage had been born in the east. Uh, they didn't trust the Italians. So uh, the Praetorian Guard promised Maxentius that they would put him on the throne, keep him on the throne, and he could play. And he was he was into architecture. And right. so... Architecture and chariot racing, actually. So he'll, he'll build himself a massive uh, cha- chariot racing uh, course and he will mm-hmm. um, uh, adorn Rome with new temples and buildings, uh, most of which aren't complete by the time that Constantine actually wins the battle. Constantine takes them over, puts Ooh. his name on them and so on. So uh, right. Maxentius, he's, he's had this promise from the Praetorian Guard and the Praetorian Guard will keep that promise. They will fight to the last man to keep him mm-hmm. uh, on the throne. And... Uh, uh, he's got a massive army, uh, of, uh, yeah. which uh, it combines several armies that have come over to his, his side. The Italians loved Maxentius. He was born at Rome. He was a Roman. For 100 years mm-hmm. prior to this, Rome had not been the capital of the, uh, the Western Empire. Milan had been at one point. Ravenna had been at one point. So um, all of Rome was, was behind Maxentius. Uh, but... Uh, he had hoped not to have to go to war with Constantine, and but Constantine has now marched with an army of only about 40,000 men but with a very strong right. cavalry component. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so he comes with a small, smaller force uh, but with a strong cavalry component and uh, he has defeated Maxentius's armies in the north of Italy uh, time and again primarily by using his, his cavalry. And he's pretty much wiped out Maxentius's cavalry. He's only got one cavalry unit left, 1,500 men Mm. of the Singularian Mm. horse. These are the the Germans from from, uh, today's Netherlands and from Switzerland and so on. Uh, And, again, they've sworn to fight to the last man for Maxentius because Mm. they were going to be, uh, or they had been sidelined. They'd been taken away as the emperor's bodyguard and sent off just as a field unit. So, but he's only got 1,500 against thousands of of Constantine's uh, uh, forces. Mm-hmm. So Maxentius is talked, there are several, he's got a, a circle of about 13 senators have supported him strongly, but I believe at least three of them, and I give details in my book, of the three right. who uh, were, had decided they were going to betray him uh, uh, to uh, and, and go over to Constantine. So they convince right. him to have this secret weapon at the time of the battle. The battle... <laughs> will be at the at the Tiber River, about nine or ten miles north of uh, of Rome, mm-hmm. uh, at the so-called Milvian Bridge, which is still there, um, very different from in those days. But what Maxentius had done, he'd stripped all the timber planking from all the bridges over the Tiber, right. and uh, 
but he put a bridge of boats, which was very common. The, the Roman military did this often. They, they could build a bridge of boats in, a, in 24 hours across a largest river. Mm-hmm. And the plan was if things went badly in the battle, which would actually, actually took place at Saxaruba, another eight or nine miles north of the river right. and of the Movian Bridge, the main battle, mm-hmm. if things went badly, retreat to the river, retreat to the temporary bridge of boats, which is a little way to the um, to the east of the actual Milvian Bridge. And once Maxentius and his bodyguard have crossed that, someone's going to pull a lever right. and the bridge is going to part in the middle, just as Constantine is riding over. This ah. is this is the secret, this is the secret plan. So really? it's a genius. It's, 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 it's genius. No, nothing could possibly go wrong with that. Nothing <laughs> can possibly go wrong. But they're but, taking advantage of the fact that Const- you said in your book that Constantine is a good war. He leads from the front. They know yes. he's going to do this. So it seems like a pretty good plan on paper. Yeah, on paper. And it right. starts to go, it goes badly, so therefore it goes well. So right. they're, they're <laughs> for, for Max Antius, because uh, uh, Constantine charges full on, mm-hmm. uh, and drives uh, the majority of Maxentius's army back. The right. Praetorian Guard, 12,000 of them, they've promised they're going to stand and not take a backward step. So, of course, they, this is what they do. Right. Which And so the, the battle passes them and they're surrounded and they will be virtually wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're no longer a, a, an element in the battle. So Maxentius and the majority of his troops fall back to the river, plan B. So Maxentius, uh, leaving this, most of the Singularian horse, horse to hold back um, uh, Constantine's cavalry right. and, and mounted infantry, turns, okay, we'll now go over the bridge. The man at the lever is ready to pull the lever. But, oh, dear, the lever is pulled just as Maxentius is crossing the bridge right. and he and the, 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 the mounted troops with him, who are heavily armoured, go into the, into the, uh, the Tiber. Yeah. Deliberately pulled when he was halfway across? Yes, uh, as I say, I, I've identified at least three senators. One was the uh, who who were uh, actually who betrayed him and were traitors to, to Maxentius, mm-hmm. uh, and one was in charge of the city guard. So he was in charge of the garrison at, at Rome. So I suspect you know, he had the power and the capacity uh, to pay off the officer whose job was to pull that lever, right. and uh, yeah, pull the lever when Maxentius is crossing the bridge. Mm. And um, so he goes in, and he's heavily armoured, of course. Mm. Yeah, beautiful, gleaming golden armour. Right. And uh, his horse, uh, he hangs onto his horse initially, Mm -hmm. and it swims for the bank, but the bank is much too high and much too muddy, slips back. Maxentius disappears beneath the water and doesn't resurface, as you you would imagine. But Uh, legend says that one day he will return to the throne. Oh no, that was uh, Constantine uh, the eleventh of Athens. That's right. <laughs> Somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So w- once Maxentius is gone, you know, there's, the, 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 his troops lose heart and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they surrender en masse. Uh, Praetorian Guard is a set of it's fought to the last man virtually, uh, and uh, the, the Singularian horse pretty much the same. Uh, and then um, Constantine enters Rome as a conqueror. Right. And uh, and uh, the people line the streets and, you know, and and bow down to him and keep their fingers crossed as he's not going to uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, massacre the population because this army is essentially a foreign army. Mm. The vast majority of the troops that have 
come uh, uh, from Gaul, from yeah, uh, yeah, born in Gaul, mm-hmm. born in Britain, uh, on the Rhine, mm-hmm. uh, German. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some of the centurions of, of, of uh, Italian, uh, Italian extraction. Right. So mm-hmm. it's basically the outsiders versus the Italians, mm-hmm. and the Italians lose. And this is, uh, you know, 100 years before the traditional fall of Rome where the Goths came in, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of a, a, a <laughs> an earlier run of that just yeah, with a, a quasi-Roman at the head of the army this time. Exactly. Right. And then uh, th- then he stays a couple of weeks. Constantine stays a couple of weeks at Rome. Mm-hmm. And he doles out, uh, you know, gifts to the people and he promises, well, I'm going to look after Rome. Uh, I'm going to look after the Senate. He leaves. Uh, he will only return to Rome twice more in his lifetime, in the next 22 years. Uh, he re- takes away all the power and privileges of the city, uh, reduces it just to, co- to a country town. If you want to sit in the Senate, terrific. Pay me eight pounds of gold a year and uh, any decisions you make will have no <laughs> influence on anything. So it just becomes a gentleman's club. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, and Rome, dis- as, as a centre of power, Totally disappears, uh, of course, and then Constantine, as we know, um, uh, establishes his new capital at uh, Byzantium, which he renames Constantinople mm. in the east. I, I've got to think just real quick. I mean, to, just to be cynical for a second, we all know that, yes, he's a general, but he's also a politician. You've got to yeah. assume he's going to tell anybody anything they want to hear to fight for him or to be on his side. But I guess yeah. the Christians, I guess for them, this is just too good of a story to pass up. He's the one who makes it legal in Rome and it spreads. And so he is venerated, I guess, by the church to a degree. I honestly don't know. Uh, after his death, I think more more so. But okay. by, by the time of his death, now uh, He's, he's described as the first Christian emperor. Mm. Philip the Arab, actually, 100 years ago, before that, had uh, adopted Christianity, but he, he didn't impose it on the rest of uh, the, the empire. Right. Uh, so Constantine, on his deathbed, uh, asked to be to baptize, be baptised. His mother, Helena, had, you know, most historians think had been a Christian for mo- most of her life. And, mm. and as I say in the book, I, I think he was torn between the... The faith of his father, and his right. father was demonstrably a follower of Saul, the sun god, and the faith of his mother, who was a, was a Christian. So finally on his deathbed, he adopts Christianity. Um, so, supposedly. Uh, yes, Acor- well, there you go, supposedly. According, according to, to the you, Christian you sources. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, um, uh, I, if he did, you know, obviously it was, it was a good insurance, just in case. Exactly. Just in case there is a Christian God, and I'm going to meet him after yeah. I die. But let's let's talk about that. Um, you know, um, I often get into discussions about uh, how Christian uh, he was, and what kind of Christian he would have been if he was. Um, you know, the the view that I've landed on over the years is uh, that. Constantine saw the Christians as a political opportunity. I, I want oh, to talk yeah. about the persecutions of Diocletian, the so-called persecutions of Diocletian too, if we have time. Yeah. But um, they had been uh, not very well treated in the preceding decades by Diocletian and Galerius for very good reasons that we can, we'll get into. But um <clears throat> Constantine sees to see them. They're a growing percentage of the empire. He's got some connection to them, as Diocletian did, family members that were Christians. But he's like, well, rather than 
to make them an enemy, let's bring them in, I'll be their champion, get them on my side. If there are 5% of the empire, that's still a sizable uh, number of people. Um, but, you know, it's it's. I think it's not very well understood, particularly by Christians, that as Pontifex Maximus, his job was to be the head of all the religions of the Roman Empire. Yep. That was this is just this is just another religion that he's plugging in, giving another them cult. another cult, as they described it at the time. Exactly, right. and and he's plugging it in, and uh, you know, giving them you know legal coverage, or reducing the or negating their taxes, giving them the opportunities to build their churches, uh, running the Council of Nicaea, and these sorts of things, trying to act as the head, but. That's his job as the Pontifex Maximus of all Roman religions, right? It's it's not. There's no evidence that I'm aware of, and the Arch of Constantine, as you point out, is significant in that, that he said, "All right, I'm ditching all the other gods and I'm believing this one." <laughs> you know, quite often Christian scholars will say, "Well, he could," and it was too politically sensitive. You know, 95 percent of the empire believed in it, but I yeah, I just think he was being practical, right? I was okay. Well, you're part of the club now. Very practical, and as Ray said. He was a great politician, uh, very clever. And uh, what Diocletian and Galerius and Licinius, uh, 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 the, uh, Galerius' successor in the East, had tried to do was destroy Christianity from outside mm. uh, or at least control it from outside by issuing various edicts and uh, and so on. As you say, uh, the, the great persecution, as it was called, started by Diocletian and Galerius, uh, was designed to rid Christians from uh, the palace initially, but also take the power away from the, the, the Christian churches because, as Galerius uh, said in one of his edicts, they'd become a power unto themselves mm. uh, and they didn't weren't answering you know, uh, to, 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 the, to the emperor. So what Constantine very cleverly did almost uh, as soon as he'd won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge was initially uh, try to control the church from within. Mm. So he then, so he contacts the, uh, the the powerful bishops, the most powerful bishops, and and writes to them and starts to um, uh, talk to them uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know we are brothers, uh, and we are a brotherhood. He uses the word brotherhood, remembering that several of the other or most of the other Roman cults, the pagan cults, are called the brotherhood of this, the brotherhood of the Arval Brotherhood, and et hmm. The Arval yeah. Brotherhood, uh, the Brotherhood of the Wolf for the, for the Lupercalia uh, uh, Festival. And um, uh, he uh, says, um, uh, as Pontifex, he doesn't say this, but what he's implying is as Pontifex Maximus, I'm in charge of all the cults and, uh, you know, so I will, uh, I will help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, from within, and if there is a dispute, send it to me. So, of course, there are internal disputes uh, oh, w- yes. within the church, uh, ongoing about uh, which uh, which uh, philosophy to believe in, which ideology, and so I'll be the arbiter, or I will sit uh, as as you decide. Uh, you know. uh, so he uh, sides with the most powerful factions because there are all these different Christian factions, mm-hmm. and so cleverly. Uh, takes control of the church from inside. And once he defeats Licinius in, in the east uh, and uh, uh, now becomes emperor for both east and west of the empire, he does exactly the same there. He calls conferences, the, the conference of Nicaea, and uh, again controls the church from within. And, of course, uh, there were lots of different uh, factions inside of Christianity at the time. 
debating amongst themselves over what we might think of today as relatively minor issues, but to them it was a big deal. Um, and they all believe that, like, as I say in my film, like today there are hundreds of different versions of Christianity. They all believe that their version is the true version. It's been the same way for 1,800, 2,000 years. It was true back then. Um, and he originally sides with the, the, the Trinitarians against the Arians, the Aryans, and I, and I find this surprises a lot of Christians that I speak to too, the Aryans, who were a relatively big thing at the time, believed that Jesus was secondary to God, that they weren't the same substance. They were, in fact, two gods mm. like, yeah. Jupiter, like Jupiter and Apollo. Exactly. God and his son. And, and that was very well accepted by a lot of the major original early church fathers, Origen, Clement, Ignatius. Even Eusebius. <laughs> well, one of right. them, right? Eusebius of uh, Nicomedia, uh, who, the one who ended up baptizing Constantine supposedly on his bed, was an Arian. Yes. So Constantine and, and, was an Arian, and his and, children and, were Arians. Yes. <laughs> and, and then Constantine sends him into exile for about three years, uh, but apparently he was a very good letter writer, Eusebius, ah. of Nicomedia, and, 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 and convinces, uh, he flatters Constantine. Constantine calls him back. And Arian was exiled and then came back as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, I wanted to talk quickly about the so-called persecutions of Diocletian because, yeah. again, um, you're one of the first people uh, who I've read about this that actually makes sense. Um, there's a couple of good books that, that have come out over the years, uh, Nixon's book, uh, Catherine Nixon's book and a few others. But, you know, when you when you drill, we've done a lot of shows about this on our uh, Renaissance series, as I said earlier, but when uh, when you drill down into it, what was happening, my understanding, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong here, but basically the Christians were troublemakers in the views of the Roman Empire. It wasn't about, they weren't being persecuted because of their religious beliefs. They were no. deliberately, some of them, a small percentage of them, but a growing percentage, were refusing to participate in the traditional sacrifices to the traditional gods. And from the Romans' perspective, that was akin to, uh, you know, atheists in the Middle Ages refusing to go to church or refusing to worship Jesus. That was by, you were putting, we've done a lot of shows on, um, uh, uh, who was the crazy priest in Florence in the late 1400s? Savonarola. Savonarola, right? Savonarola, yeah. yeah. It was the same sort of thing. Like you're you're threatening to bring down destruction and famine on all of us. There's plenty of evidence in the sources where Christian governors would say, look, just just pretend, just burn the meat, and we don't care what you believe. <laughs> just go along with it yeah, so we can say, oh, yeah, he did it, he did it, it's all okay, you know. But these Christians were just, they were basically sticking their finger up at the empire and saying, no, we won't do it, and it was causing actual problems in the empire. Well, more, more than that, they were actually sabotaging pagan uh, religious uh, rites the and festivals. Mm. Mm. Uh, and And uh, th 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 there was a case, and I mentioned it in the book, where uh, the you know the, the pilgrimage to shrines was something that the pagans invented, and uh, so it was uh, uh, it was good for your soul apparently to go to make a pilgrimage to uh, a temple, particularly a temple of Apollo. Uh, and there was one in particular in the east uh, where at Didymar, where the, the town made a fortune 
from all the pilgrims that arrived at, to walk the 10 or 12 miles to along the sacred way to the temple uh, and, uh, and, and, and pay their respects to the god there, god of Apollo. Uh, and the Christians were turning up along the sacred way uh, or, and outside the temple, uh, you know, you can imagine, like a modern protest today, <laughs> and, right. uh, 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 and, and sabotaging there. Uh, but it's what finally pushed Diocletian over the top, his wife and his daughter were supposedly at least, if, if not uh, you know, full Christians, very sympathetic to Christianity. But um, so he, uh, you know, he was probably reluctant to, to do too much, but Galerius was absolutely hated the Christians. His mother was a, a priestess at a, a pagan temple, so he was pushing Diocletian to do something about these damned Christians. Um, so they send to a, um, an oracle uh, of, of Apollo uh, to seek his advice, uh, and um, uh, the message comes back. Um, the, the oracle won't, won't uh, answer your inquiry because of these people. They don't mention the Christians by name, but it's clear that the Christians, again, have uh, in some way or another sabotaged the, uh, the, uh, the process. And so Diocletian um, finally agrees we've got to do something about them. And this is when they issued this edict uh, uh, against the Christians, uh, taking away Christian church property. This was another thing that the that the, 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 the emperors didn't like. The Christian church would, uh, the members bound together and as a corporation would buy property mm-hmm. uh, to, to create uh, places of worship uh, to, uh, to, for burial grounds and so on. So we'll take away their property. Uh, and require uh, them to uh, uh, burn their Christian texts, texts, and also uh, um, uh, pay obeisance to the pagan gods. And if they don't, then they'll be punished. And the interesting thing is that a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian priests actually followed the directive, mm. burnt burnt the Christian text, although they were said later, oh, no, 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 we kept, we, we burnt spare copies, we, yeah. we, we hid the... the uh, Fake the, copies. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> uh, and, and we, only, we only pretended to make sacrifices to the gods, you know, uh, and this is, this is uh, causes one of the, uh, the, the schisms in the church. Right, after, schism after afterwards, yeah. Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, go, sorry. I was going to say, what people I think often don't realise too about Christianity back then is it was a it was a genuine doomsday cult, always had been, like going right back to Paul and 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 the writers of the Gospels. They believed that the end of the world was going to happen any day now, and so none of it mattered. Just and they wanted the end of the world to come because they believed that when it came, they were going to go to paradise. Most Christians, you know, were the poor, they were the oppressed. Um, they had shitty lives and they couldn't wait for the end of times to come. So, you know, we're about, you're going to come back on our show uh, soon to talk about the Great Fire of Rome as part of our Nero series. I actually think the the idea of Christians setting fire to Rome probably has some merit to it. I think they they did want to see the end of the world. They, they wanted to see the end of the pagan religions. They wanted to bring it about as soon, quickly as they could. And there's plenty of evidence, again, in Eusebius and these other sources that a lot of them had a death wish. Even as late as the 4th century, a lot of them were like, no. They wanted to be martyrs. They wanted to be martyrs, exactly. They wanted to be mm-hmm. martyrs. There was a famous, famous case of a bishop taken from the east to Rome uh, during the time of Nero. And, yeah. uh, and he was saying, yeah, 
Matami, Matami. Yeah. yeah he, he, and, he and, the, and the Romans and, were and, horrified by it. They're like, what is wrong with you? What's your problem? <laughs> they were scary. They were a terrorist cult. <laughs> this is one of the attractions of Christianity as opposed to the pagan religion. Um, and the, in that there was, uh, you know, promised an afterlife. There was, the afterlife was, was not part of the deal with, with, the, with the pagan religion. Have you seen my oh, film? Yeah. <laughs> I talk about that in my film, like an eternity yeah. in paradise. They say in the film, exactly. I'd be happy with a weekend in paradise right now, let alone <laughs> eternity in paradise, right? It was a, it was a unique selling proposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's just podcasters. That's all our life is anyway, probably like yeah. an author, right? We just sit yeah. in our little rooms and. Yeah, I, I, I did home quarantine uh, recently um, for two weeks and uh, people said, yeah, it must have been dreadful. I said, no, the writer's <laughs> life is home quarantine. Exactly. I like We me. don't notice. I yeah. like my company. It's everybody else's yeah, exactly. life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, listen. Um, so, so, so I finished the book by saying how. You know, there's this impression that uh, Christianity, you know, Rome became Christian overnight. It, it didn't. Yeah. And, in fact, the, 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 the church had great problems. And we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, decades later, uh, the, the Roman pagan festivals are still being celebrated. And so, uh, as I say in the book, uh, the church, uh, the Catholic church, clearly uh, felt the only way we're going to bring the people with us is to adopt the Christian festivals and the Christian habits uh, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, the pagan festivals and the and the, and the pagan habits, mm-hmm. everything from wedding rings to wearing black in mourning to uh, uh, to um, the various. Uh, uh, and let's replace mm-hmm. the uh, the pagan gods with saints. Mm-hmm. So where there was a patron god of uh, of travel, mm-hmm. uh, now we'll make it a patron saint of travellers and so on. Um, so I thought it, I think it was very clever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it, it wasn't such a hard. Uh, switch for the uh, you know for people to go from but but uh, we're still talking decades later uh, you know uh, famous po- po- Roman poet Claudian is, is delivering his latest poem on the steps of the Temple of Apollo which has long been closed on the Palatine Hill to a huge crowd an adoring crowd and it's all about the gods of old mm-hmm. so you know it, uh, and probably the Roman army that the military was the last to to adopt uh, Christianity. Wow. Uh, and there, there is a, a, a classic example of, of, uh, of uh, the writings of uh, Cassius Dio, and as we know, uh, these books were copied and copied uh, and recopied by hand down through the centuries, and uh, you're able to compare the original with a later Christian copy and a particular battle. The 12th uh, Thundering Legion uh, is uh, uh, um, wins a battle, and uh, in the original version, uh, on a on a an ice covered river uh, uh, on the Danube, and uh, in the original version, uh, Jupiter is given credit. In the Christian version, copied and and, and rewritten, uh, you know, maybe a hundred, two hundred years later, uh, it's the Christian God who brings uh, the, yeah. the legion the victory. So Marketing. gradually, step by step, um, you know, the the um, the the ideologies of the pagan uh, era are are. Um, Quietly and easily swapped for you know Christian um, replacements. Well, I'm sorry, Stephen. I have a kung fu class I really have to get to, but um, <laughs> I could talk to you all day. Um, we have to cut it here, but uh, you, you will come back in a couple of weeks and talk to us about Nero. I hope. I will indeed. All right. So we'll just have a fire. 
Have a fiery discussion. We will. <laughs> nice one. So this one uh, is coming out soon, I think. Uh, when does it uh, hit? Next, next week, yes. Next, next week. week. Okay, well, we have this episode. In the US. Uh, at, Next week in the US, uh, UK a little later, uh, Australia, New Zealand uh, early next year. Well, we're recording this on the 4th of November, so uh, the episode won't come out for probably a week or so, but people can work out the dates from there. Constantine at the Bridge, get a copy of it. Stephen Dando Collins, uh, it's a terrific read, very yes. uh, a fun story, I think an important story for everyone who's interested in Roman history or Christian history or Western history of Western civilization to understand uh, thank you once again for uh, entertaining us, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Cam. Thanks, Ray. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.